Okay, we're going to talk about rules today. What's the purpose of rules? What's the purpose of the law? The Jewish people, uh, many of whom are hearing from this uh, in Rome, they had a Jewish background, many did. They had a strong sense of rules. And so, just to get you a sense about rules, sometimes when I hear the word rules, I, I have negative thoughts. Like someone would say, oh, religion's just a bunch of rules. Well, there's a lot of, there are a lot of rules in some religions, and some religions are rule-driven. Our faith is not. Um, but still, rules aren't necessarily bad things. The best examples that come to my mind come from the World Cup, because I saw a lot of that. And there's a lot of drama in the World Cup around rules. These players, they produce more drama than a soap opera around these rules. And, you, you know, the ref will blow the whistle and penalize a player, and he'll do the arm swinging and... I mean, it's a very dramatic experience. Uh, you'd think someone died in the experience you see in a soccer game. Um, when, as though this person, how dare the official indict him with this rule? And then three minutes down the, the road in the game, the very same player will put on this very same act, except this time it's to the ref on how come he won't enforce the rule to someone else. It's, it's, and it's how we are, isn't it? We, want, we desperately want the rules to be e- enforced in an even-handed way to everyone else. But with us, we have our list of excuses of why it ought not to be enforced in our life. And so I, I say that because at a standoff distance, we obviously appreciate the merits of rules. What would a, what would a soccer game be if you didn't know where the out-of-bounds was? You need them. We need, rules are helpful in our life. When they get close to us, something happens. And Paul's going to deal with that a little bit today in the scriptures. The subject of rules has surfaced now in, in Paul's letter to Romans, to the Romans, because so far he said, that Jesus, only Jesus saves, and that salvation comes only by faith. Right? That's the message of a Christian, is that Christ saves, and we can have that gift by faith. But if it's by faith, that means that our works are of no avail to us. They don't contribute. They don't assist. That all of our works, if you are here, and you consider yourself a law-abiding citizen in the kingdom of God, the reality is that does not contribute to your salvation. You cannot bring a contribution to the Lord. We come to Jesus by faith. That's the message of Christ. We come to him by faith and only by faith. And our works, they don't contribute. Your astute observance, maybe for some of you in your religious traditions too, some religious traditions are more, much more behoven to a sort of rule-oriented living, when sometimes those traditions can give you a greater sense of peace because you've done certain things, the truth of Scripture is Jesus died for us, and we have access by faith. And those things grant us no greater access. Well, to the ears hearing this, to the ears reading this letter, Paul knew what was going to happen. He, he knew the Jewish ears that were going to be 
kind of ah, chewing on these ideas. And you've got to remember, they didn't have the New Testament. They had the, only the first thousand pages of this book. And in this section, there's a lot of rules, a lot of, a lot of talk about rules, a lot of celebration of the rules, a lot of hope maybe hung on the rules. Certainly the people who had lived with that as their Bible and who wanted, who are willing to come to God and already had a relationship with God, that to them, the rules were a very big thing. And here Paul comes off saying, hey, the very same God that gave you the first thousand pages, the Old Testament, that that very same God is the one who brought a Messiah, a Savior, to the world, and that Savior says that those rules make no contribution to your salvation, but that faith through him is your salvation. And you can imagine to someone like that, they would begin to say, well, well, then what's the purpose of all the rules? Why the law? Why even have the law? And so Paul responds to two ideas here. The first idea, which is the first six verses, he's going to encourage the reader that we're free from the law. And then the second idea that he's going to offer is not we're free from the law, but the law is still a good thing. Okay, that's there. Don't leave, but that's where we're going. So let me read uh, the first three verses, and... Uh, we'll go from there. In these first three verses, it's a picture. He's going to set up an example. So it's a pretty simple example that he's going to set up, and then he'll use it in the following verses. This is what he says. Or do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now there's nothing nothing new here. Nothing surprising, even to our own ears. This is, this is how it is today. If you're married to one man, you're married to that man, and you can't live with another man, that would be adultery. Even today, we appreciate that when uh, the death releases us from the bond of marriage, we know that even today. In fact, when you give your vows in a wedding, it's part of the contract. It's the, last, it's the last words of your contract to one another. Your vows to one another is, for as long as we both shall live, or till death do us part, or something like that. It's, it's our admittance that I'm in this with you. And it's not like we're really thinking about this in our wedding. But it's an acknowledgement of, I'm in this with you until it's just one of us. And then that person's free. You're not going to remain married to a corpse. That's the idea. And the big principle that Paul's dropping here, the one he's highlighting is, that death releases us from this covenant of marriage. Death releases us. That's, that's the big idea I want you to hold on to. That's what he's trying to get across. Don't you realize 
that a covenant, even a beautiful covenant like marriage, has its limitations. And its limitations is death. We're released from the binds of that covenant at death. Okay? So let me read the fourth verse, and this is where he begins to apply the image. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So what he does here is uh, some things, the important things remain the same, but then something twists, okay? The thing that remains the same is death still releases us, still releases us. So he's relying on the, the constancy of the principle to work, except in this image. In the earlier example, he said, listen, if your husband dies, you're free to remarry. Speaking to the wife, if the husband dies, she can remarry. Here, it's as though the wife died, and now she's free through death. That's the picture. Likewise, brothers, you've also died. The church, the brothers of the church, are being placed in this position of the wife. Likewise, my brothers, you've also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that what? So that you may belong to another. You see that? It's saying of the wife, the church, you've died, and in your death you're released from your earlier husband which for a Jewish community was the law. So he's saying, since you've died in Christ, right? Jesus Christ died, and we claim his death as our death. He died to pay the penalty of our sins. And Paul's been teaching this, right? This is earlier. Don't you realize that you've been united with Christ in his death? In baptism, it goes through the motions of you participating with the Lord in his death. So he's drawing back on those images, saying that we are, Receive Christ's death as having been our own death, just like we receive Christ's resurrection as our resurrection. And in doing so, he's saying, you have a new husband. That's what he's saying. He's saying, church, you have a new husband. It's not the law. The law has no power over you anymore, and you have no obligation to the law anymore. You are fully released from the law because you've died. The power of the law does not reach. You've been released from it. That's, that's what he's saying here. In fact, you have a new husband. And that husband is Christ, right? It says, it's actually a beautiful language here. You died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may, may belong to another to him. You died through him to be brought to him. I like that. It's, it's pretty. It even has this, in fact the end of the verse, in order that we may bear fruit to God, I don't know what kind of fruit he's talking about. I mean, it's babies? I mean, spiritual fruitfulness. But if it's playing along in the marriage analogy, it, it has that kind of life fruitfulness in it. Okay, what he's saying, just to be clear, is when we come to Jesus... Any, before Christ, our answer for why God would save us is because I'm a pretty good person. That's what most people say, whether they say it or not. That's essentially what they're saying is, I didn't do anything wrong, I didn't kill anybody. On the spectrum of Hitler to Mother Teresa, I'm on the Mother Teresa side of the balance. That's kind of how we think. The reality is, is if Hitler was here, and Mother Teresa's here, well, that balance is useful. But if Hitler's here, 
and Jesus is here, then Mother Teresa's right here. You appreciate that? The gap of righteousness that we're really talking about? So we're just playing with shades of black. But we think, you know, we, our general, the general thought before we're encountered by Jesus is, I'm a pretty good person, which regardless of what law you're using, whether it's the Old Testament law or your neighborhood law or the law that's in your semi-agnostic mind or whatever it is, you're saying you grade pretty well on that law. And Jesus is saying, or Paul's saying, when we come to Christ, we're free from the power of that law completely. We do not owe it any kind of faithfulness anymore. It is not our husband. Christ is our husband. He warrants our attention and our affection and our faithfulness. If you're in the church and you're here because you're observant, you're observant, you're observant, I'm here to say you're free from that. You're free from all of that. It never worked anyway. What I do notice in my own life, and I imagine it's true in some of yours, is I, 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 we come to Christ the right way. We come to Christ by faith. Then we kind of stand up in Christ and we say, now what are we supposed to do? And because we have this old way in us, we say, now I got saved by Christ, so now I go and I do these things again. And so it's almost as though we're living, we're, we're bigamous. Christ is our husband, but we return to the old husband Monday through Friday to live. And he's saying, no, you've died to that husband. Look at verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. He's talking about your former life. He's saying, listen, when you tried, when you were married to the law, he says, an interesting thing happened. When you were married to the law, when you were trying to justify yourself based upon your observance and your obedience, the reality is is you trying to do the right thing and you knowing all the rules, it actually aroused in you a tendency, a passion in you towards breaking rules. That when the laws are placed down, the laws had this bizarre effect inside of us because sin is already in us. The law had this bizarre effect that it worked its way in and when the law got in there, sin was aroused by it. Our sinful passions were aroused by it. So when we were, he's saying, when you were the wife of the law, you weren't a very good wife anyway. You were not faithful to him. Your relationship with the law actually bred a lawbreaker's spirit. can imagine the people hearing this who grew up in the Hebrew way. Ugh. Like first he says, I'm free from it when my whole life I've clung to it. And then he says, and by the way, it wasn't helping me anyway. Look at verse six. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The new way of the Spirit. 
this is this is a moment, okay? This is you know tides, when tides change, right? They go to slack water and then they come back out. This is that moment in in this in the sermon series. Right here the tide is changing. Thus far, he's been calling us to recollect things about the Lord, think about things about the Lord, understand the ways of the Lord. Right here, he, he begins, he introduces this new idea that you've been brought into a new way of the Spirit, which so far we haven't talked at all about the Spirit on these Sundays. It had, the Spirit has been mentioned twice in the verses, once which was, hey, it's coming, and now. And all of these weeks, we've been in 5, 6, and 7. The odd thing is, is the word spirit shows up in the eighth chapter of Romans more than it does in any other book of the entire New Testament. We're on our way to it. And so he's saying, listen, it isn't simply that you've been freed from the law so that you live lawless, a lawless life. You've not been freed into a void. He says, you've been freed from the law and with your new husband and this new covenant and this new relationship you have, there's a new way of living. And oddly enough, this new way of living results in greater obedience. Which is why the psalmist in the 119th Psalm can talk the way he talks. Why he can celebrate the law. Your statutes are good. They're like honey. I dream of them. I meditate on them. He's not the old way. The psalmist is in the new way of the Spirit speaking of the Old Testament. But it's in him. And there's a, there's a truth, right? There's, there was a point when I was a child where there was no such thing as a good rule. I didn't want any rule. Certainly religious rules. Why can't I do that? Why can't I do that? And even when I was obedient, oh, it was, well, it better be good when I get it. It was, I didn't understand it, but it was just kind of raw. Ah, I was never a Psalm 119 human. Never. The idea of celebrating the truth of God, the rules of God, as being life-giving to me was alien to me. Now, in the Spirit, when the Lord says, blessed are the meek, there's something in me that goes, yeah. Lord, make me more meek. When he says, blessed are the pure, for they shall see God, I go, God, I want to see you. I, I earnestly long for that purity so that I might see God. Like all the things now that the, law, that the Lord says, the true things he says, love your neighbor, forgive, love your enemies, give grace, don't harbor bitterness, don't look at these things. All of these things now in the spirit, the ideas that of the law are now attractive to me. This is what he's, he's hinting at right now with this, this new way, this new way of the Spirit, which is coming. But it's not the old way. It's not, hey, do these things and you'll be righteous. So in this first section, Paul is saying, listen, you're free. You're released from the law. There's not a Christian, there's not a Christian anywhere on the face of the earth that is coming to the Lord by virtue of their observance, their religious observance. You're free from that. Then we get to verse 7. And in verse 7, he's anticipating that his readers are going to balk. They're going to go, are you kidding me? You're telling me, especially in verse 5 there, when he says, when we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were excited by the law. Are you saying to me that the law is sinful? 
that's what they're going to ask. Verse 7, what, shall we then, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. But there, you can imagine someone feeling that way when you say, well, the reality is, is when you have the law, all it really does is evoke in your, you your sinful passions that explode into sinfulness. So how's that working out for you? And Paul says, well, then they say, so is, is the law sin? He says, no. Now look at verse 7. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. He's saying, listen, first of all, what the law does is the law gives us an awareness of what sin is because it draws a line in the sand. Just like in soccer, you need the line to know what's out of bounds. So he's saying, no, the law is not sinful, but the law brought into my consciousness that which is sin, and we know this. We, we know this. There's things, some, even life in the Spirit, the Lord sometimes doesn't show you things about yourself until you're ready to handle them. But certainly as children, as parents, you can probably remember this as ch- children or identify this as parents, there are things that you don't even want to introduce to your children because what, why bring that into their world right now? Why even bring it into their world right now? Like, they don't even need to deal with all of that, that category of sinfulness. Let's just protect them from now from it. And he's saying what the law does is as the law is introduced in our life, it begins to introduce the category, categories of moral living, which then allow us to identify sin. And he says something else that's even a little more sinister. Look at verse 8. But sin... Seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. So he says, listen, I would not have known what it means to covet until the Lord said, do not covet. And then he says, and then when I did know not to covet, sin woke up in me and said, you should have that. You should have that too. That should be yours. Why is that grass greener? He said, sin lies asleep in us. And when a rule, when a truth or a rule of God lands in us, the truth comes in, the good commandment comes in, and it comes in our ears, and it echoes down into our bellies, and that echo wakes up sin, which is inside of us. It arouses the sin of covetousness to action. And so when the Lord says, thou shalt not, there's already something latent inside of us that says, why not? Why can't I? And it's sleeping, and it's just waiting to be awakened in us. And so as the good law is brought into us, sinfulness, which is already inside of us, is whipped up and fanned up into action to go, I should have that. Why can't I have that? I see this. I see this regularly, not only in my life, but just simply with my children. They are going to bed, and mom and dad are going to watch a mom and dad show. Well, what is that? Is that a PG-13 one? Is it PG-13? And you're like, it's no big deal, buddy. It's just mom and dad are going to sit down and watch a little movie. Is there dirty words? It's dirty words, isn't it? Is it violence? Is it scary? And you're like, go to bed. And they go to bed, but their neck stays behind. <laughs> like right around the corner. I'm going to bed. I'm just... Can I watch a PG-13 movie when I'm 13? Maybe. 
What about when I'm 12? It's time for bed. Right? And then they, all of a sudden, they're thirsty, so they got to come down to get something to drink, and it, like, it never happens except for nights like that. And they're like... Or they get these brilliant thoughts that they want you to solve world peace that night. They're oh, I was just wondering about the kids in Africa. They, all of this happens... Why? Because it's arousing them. You can't watch it. Why can't I watch it? Now I want to watch it. Why won't you let me watch it? Dirty words? Well, why aren't dirty words? There's, there's the sin of dirty words lying latent in them. It's not latent in our kids. This potty mouth sin is just looking to get whipped up, to get alive. He's saying that's what the command, that's the result of commandments when they come into us. He says, listen, you think that the, law, that the law is helping you? He says, you don't realize how weak you are. The reality is, is as good as the law is, you are in such dire need that when the law comes in, all it does is fan the flames of your own sin. So that at the end of the day, you find yourself to be a lawbreaker, not a law keeper. At the end of the day, It's not simply that you know that you ought not to covet. You know that you are covetous, which is a whole different order of magnitude. At the end of the day, it says, thou shalt not lie. And you know at the end of the day that you're a liar. And you know that you shouldn't murder, but you at the end of the day know that you have harborous tendencies of anger. That's what the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, listen, it is written, Thou shalt not do this, and thou shalt not do that. But he kind of follows it down. He says, just look inside of you at the sin that is aroused, the sinful passions that are in you already at work. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, listen, the law's not bad, but what does the law do in you? Ah. Verse 8, but sin... Seeing an opportunity through the commandment produced to me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And then I'm going to read 9 through 11 uh, together. And then we'll kind of jump back on it. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. You see that? Fans it up. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin... Seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now 12 feels out of place. Except for the fact that Paul, if you, if you look at the culprit in 9 through 11, you realize the culprit's not the commandment. The, the commandment's always nearby the culprit, but the culprit is sin. Look at, look at verse 9. I once was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came in, sin came alive and I died. The commandment didn't do it. In verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved death to me. Because of the commandment itself? No, because look at 11. For sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. It's saying that the commandment brings, brings in this dimension of life that because we're sinful, we're too weak to find life in it. We can't find life in the commandment because we're sinful. And so the result is death. But it's not the fault of the commandment. And you'd say, well, then why give us the law? For crying out loud, why give us the law? 
And Paul, Paul would say, well, God gave us the law to bring, bend our knees. So we would bow before him and say, save me. This is what he says in 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandments might become sinful beyond measure. In other words, the, the purpose of the law is to, not simply to arouse sin in us. That's not the purpose of the law. It's not to arouse sin in us. The purpose of the law is to show us what's good. The reality of the law is that it arouses our sinfulness, and God's purpose through that is that we would see that we're utterly sinful. And when we see that we're utterly sinful, we would no longer rely on the law for salvation. But when we would hear the words of Christ, we would die to the law to be his. It's God's hope that as people begin to accumulate a body of evidence on who, what God is like and what he would desire, that we would re- realize we are not him and we are far from him. We are sinful beyond measure and in that find Christ. 9 through 11, and I'll close with this idea here. 9 through 11 um, I want to just give this to you. Maybe it'll go drive home with you. I don't know. Maybe you'll read it again. It, it is the, a beautiful overlay for the story of the fall in Genesis. I, I wonder if Paul is thinking of Genesis when he writes 9 through 11. It's not, the fall of Genesis, the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Right? Remember the, Lord, the story of the Lord? The Lord, there's two trees in the middle of the garden. There's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord says to Adam, you may eat of any tree of the garden and of any fruit of any tree of the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that you eat of that, you shall surely die. That was the rule given, right? And then the serpent shows up and arouses in the man and the woman this tendency that brings death. Look at the verse. I once was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died the very commandment that promised life. Remember, the commandment of the Lord in the garden is, don't eat this and you'll live forever. Okay? The very commandment that promised life proved death to me, for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. That's just, uh, it's true about Adam and it's true about us. It's just true. We are in great need. And our need comes, our hope comes through the death and resurrection of Christ. He's our new husband. I want, I want to close this way. Uh, we're going to take some time in prayer, um, time to respond. So this will be, there'll be intercessors on the side of the room to receive you if you want a prayer. I certainly don't want to dictate how you want to respond to the Lord. It's, it's been, the whole worship service uh, moves us to respond. But I do want to encourage you that if you're here today and you have been observant, I want to say there is a new way, the new way of the Spirit, that your observance is of no avail before the Lord. That we are at the end of the day sinful beyond measure. And that God meets us there for our salvation. 
And I want to encourage you that if you feel these verses, like 7 through 11, if they're keen in your life of, I try to do the right things, but every time I approach a law, I find myself, oh, it's almost like the issues of self-control come to their end in some of these things. I want you to say, God knows it. God knows it, and he's using it to bring you to him. So go to him. As we continue in the weeks, we'll arm ourselves with the truth of the Spirit. But for now, be at peace to know that God knows. And he meets us there. Let's pray, Lord. Help us to respond to you in a way that's right and honest and genuine, Lord. I pray that, I pray that for each person here, they'd have a space to be genuine with you. Genuinely introspective as to who they are. I pray, Lord, that if someone here is feels captive to a sin or feels like when they try to do right, they end up doing wrong, I feel, I pray, Lord, that they would be encouraged that God knows that and has a new way for them. That on the other side of the death of Christ, he's waiting. He's willing to save. He has the gift of the Spirit to put in them. And that we are seen, found acceptable. Acceptable though sinful beyond measure, Lord. That is the gift of the gospel. Lord, in each person's way, Lord, help us to respond to you in a way that's pleasing. In Jesus' name, amen.